This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire Leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. They look like they have more fun than us. Yes, exactly. We don't yeah. have much fun. We work in fun, but we don't have fun. We don't have any fun. Ever. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Can we... <clears throat> Can we... Today we spoke to comedian Mark Watson and his brother Paul. Who is an enigma. Total enigma. Enigma. <laughs> 80s pop group. <laughs> Total enigma. I They're an 80s them. pop group who used to wear monk costumes. <laughs> Yeah, they had a lovely relationship. Oh, you've lovely. done it again. Oh, God. I've fallen into the same trap. I'm going to get a thesaurus of lovely. Hold on. Today... I'm going to look up what they say for lovely and you can use another word. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. she's good. Today we spoke to comedian Mark Watson and his brother Paul. Uh, I'm just looking up lovely. Hold on. Uh, lovely. This, I mean, this, these files are going to take hours. To Very send. beautiful or attractive. Mm. Uh, okay, attractive, good looking. Um, fit. That's what it says. Ravishing, seductive, or fit. Hey, come on, focus. What am I doing? Before we start, I'm going to have 10 minutes of hysteria and don't want to do the podcast because I want to talk about you live in Stroud. I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. That's where we grew up. We that yeah. is no. my favorite place in Huge. the whole Big news. world. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Come on. Let's do 10 minutes on this. So we wow. need to discuss that. Let's do some local knowledge then. So this I mean this would be good for the podcast too, but okay. those those um some of those potholes when you go past Bowbridge. <laughs> my god, those potholes. And then they, they went through the whole rigmarole of pretending they were going to fix it and they didn't. Exactly. Right? Gold dust material. <laughs> Yeah. Am I right, guys? I mean, but we, we are unbelievable. We grew up in Cheltenham, but we went to Stroud every weekend and our dad lived in Stroud, in yeah. Slad. Oh, so Slad. it's literally the place I always said I was going to end up. Right, good. Okay. And I worked in the retreat and you had a retreat in Stroud and a retreat in Cheltenham. <laughs> I, would, I would do two hours on Stroud and I'm oh, serious. That's quite, yeah, yeah. Right. That's obvious. <laughs> I love it. It's my, it's my, you know when you go to a happy place when you're having an operation or something? Mm, that's yours my happy is Stroud. Place. Often there's a... Um, <laughs> 
there's often a podcast that's a spin-off of another thing. Maybe maybe you want to monitor this kind <laughs> of thing. And if it becomes a regular enough feature, you should think about a standalone venture. I think we yeah. should. Let's move on. Go on. Right, who's the funniest? I, I'd probably go with Mark in that he's a professional comedian of sort of relatively high acclaim. So I'd, I'd, I'd go with Mark on the basis of that. The thing is, I don't think I am actually... I just think I'm, I've, I've made it my business to do this professionally. And Paul never, in fact, none of the other siblings never, ever had. Or our dad, actually. The old man is really funny, but there's, there couldn't be a person less interested in um, uh, entertainment or, or the accoutrements of show. So basically, I think I'm just, we've all got the, uh, the same sense of humour, I reckon. But mine is plus the sort of ego or whatever you call the instinct that drives you to perform i think basically i think if you saw all the watsons together um you'd be struck by how we all basically make each other laugh in the same amount but only one of us decided it was a good idea to hinge their life plan on this no but i think when you do something professionally you get just very good at it you know you do it day in there so i always think that when i see mark especially doing an actual stand-up show is like large elements of it are just like he was his in normal life it's not that different to that but then there's that other level where he's just sort of taken it and become really really good at it and mm, mm, mm. it's a bit like i suppose you do have to you, practice you do have to do a lot of gigs to be a comedian that, that, that's a yeah, point. yeah. <laughs> but, but it must be one of the biggest annoyances of being a comedian is that everyone who can be quite funny in a social scenario suddenly thinks oh, i could have a go at that but it's just it is like someone being reasonably good at doing kick-ups and thinking they can be a footballer you know it yeah. is a very different thing in fact football is a good comparison because there's loads of people that can do that thing where they like flick it up and catch it on their back and stuff and those people go mad on youtube but and you're like, oh this why is this guy not a footballer and you're like well you don't need to know much about football to know the answer if in a real match you catch the ball on your back it won't go very well for you and uh, <laughs> it's, it, you're right though paul it is a um I mean, you don't want to be too much of an asshole about it because I, I, I never, I try never to sort of dismiss anyone that's not in this. If anything, I look up to people that have got proper jobs. But it is a common bugbear of comedians that everyone's got a mate that they think ought to be a comedian. Uh, oh, yeah. And sometimes you meet that mate. Sometimes you meet every comedian meets people that are like, yeah, everyone always says that I should do this and have a go at it and stuff like that. <laughs> actually, I don't automatically dismiss them because, for all I know, they might have be like a potentially great comment but i do dismiss people who are always saying that and never never do it to those people i always say you should have a go at it you should do an actual you know do an open mic or something both with comedy and with books it's that, with books that's, that's exactly 10 times as many that. people yeah. say to you yeah i wouldn't mind a go at that as as yeah. we'll ever do it and so to all of them i just if i'm asked for advice i always just say what well, have a go at it like, do it actually do it just do the it the best way to do it yeah. is do it i mean it's not it's not always that easy with comedy because, as we all know, gigs, even like open mic gigs and stuff, are massively oversubscribed. But if you really want to do it, then you will progress beyond just being that guy in the pub that, that could have. Again, it's a bit. Again, it is a bit like football. You'll you'll be watching a match in the pub, and people will be you know looking at some uh, objectively outstandingly talented twenty five year old, but he's having a bad game, and the guy in the pub will be mm-hmm. like, "I could have done that, but I just you're like no, you couldn't have because." By definition, you couldn't have because even if you were once that skillful at football, you never did go and spend years trying to get trials with clubs. So it's a bit like that with comedy, you know. Exactly. But we're, Rachel's with a writer, partner is a writer, my partner's a comedian, yeah. and we don't see them. That's it. We don't see them because they work so fucking hard at those yeah. simple things. Yeah, Jack, in so, fact, yeah. Uh, Jack's, Rachel's partner, is, well, I was at university with him. And, um, yes. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, I, yeah, but I didn't know he was your partner till till last week. But um, yeah, his his work ethic is something I've always really admired. You know, even at university, yeah, he mad. he and I were 
like two of the most prolific people for putting plays out and stuff. But he was well ahead of me because he 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 was already like a, essentially a screenwriter and stuff. Like I was just doing it. But I've always, I think Paul's similar actually. We've always tended to just follow the impulse to do stuff like rather than thinking about what we could do if we could be bothered. <laughs> it's like it's like that stupid. Uh, it's it's quite funny that cartoon of this little boy looking at a modern art piece in the gallery and saying, "I could have done that, Mum." As exactly. Mum's like, "Yeah, you didn't, did you?" And it's basically yeah. that. You know, anyway, yeah. people ask me a bit about yeah. how, you know, how did you manage an international football team? Well, it's kind of, you know, why did you do that? And it's basically everyone comes up with these ideas, but no one actually sees them through. And the only thing that really separates you from everyone else is just the fact you, you actually do it. It's hard work. Yeah. So, Paul, work. what do, yeah, sorry, can we just clarify for people listening what, what you do, what you do, You Paul? probably shouldn't just say becoming an international football manager and then just <laughs> move the conversation on. <laughs> With like a massive asterisk as well. No, I mean not to try to shoehorn my my, my career into it, but but basically, when I was twenty five, me and my flatmate came up with the idea that about a million people have had of um, because we were never very good at football, but we wanted to be, and we always wanted to play for England, and that was never going to happen. Finding the worst international football team in the world, naturalising to play for them, and therefore beating the system, so we would become mm-hmm. international footballers simply by lowering the bar low enough. And this is the kind of conversation I think you know millions of football fans have had in the pub, and it usually goes no further than getting to the end of that kind of well, I could be in Andorra's team sort of conversation, and we we just took it to its very logical conclusion and found objectively the weakest team in the world and did go there. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they were a long way away. Yeah, it was about nine thousand miles. It's a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, uh, and instead right. of playing for them we actually end up setting up a team that sort of disbanded um and coaching it but um but basically it was that thing of anyone could have done it we had no no skills no meaningful skills um but the reason people don't do it is because they they've got very good you know they've got jobs they've got Mm-hmm. Loved ones, they they're not crazy enough to sort <laughs> so of. You had none of that. You had none of that. He did. He did. Actually, I had a, I had a, oh. I had a rubbish job. Uh, I had a, I had a job I really didn't enjoy. But what I had were a, you doing? Um, I was a football journalist, but it sounded very okay. glamorous. I worked for Football Italia, and everyone always thought, "Oh, what a what a lovely job!" And like had mm-hmm. pictures of me sort of interviewing players in Milan and stuff. No, I was drinking those really laptop. really tiny espressos that they always do when you see Italian. Exactly, Drink, drinking. Coffee that's so strong it can knock you off your chair, but um, no, you're not on a chair, you're just standing up to drink it because you're in it. Yeah, I was was basically translating Italian things into English, um, in my my room of my basically one room flat in Acton, uh, being paid 14,000 pounds a year with no real possibility of getting more. So, really, actually, the job was not a lot of fun. Uh, but I did also have a girlfriend who is now my wife, uh, who put up with the whole thing. But um, I didn't. What yeah. do you do now? So what do you do now? Now, oh yeah, that's, that's a good question. So now <laughs> I, I, I guess football-based projects, but they are all voluntary. So I try and do other bits and pieces to pay the bills. Um, right. But but no, so, my my passion is sort of projects where football help people basically that's, right. that's been and did you mark are you into football so did you both grow up being obsessed with football? absolutely we did yeah and um okay. it's almost all to do with how you're brought up initially i suppose when people aren't into sport mm. they just normally haven't had it, it like explained to them why it was meant to be interesting but our dad's a big sports fan and but he didn't he didn't really kind of inculcate it or he, he's not the sort of personality that instills things forcefully he just opened the world of football up to us and Paul and I sort of ran with that and became enormous football nerds basically but and like we supported still do support like a 
what was then a third tier massively underachieving team and now like all right team but still like we've never mm. been uh we've never had a team like like a man united for, you know we've basically been yeah. unsuccessful football fans for most of our and so we've always gravitated what we always liked most was was this like odd the nerdy d- dimension the, mm. the underdog yeah. the we were yeah. always um and it's one of the things that annoy me about like the portrayal of football is like um a, a blokes thing where everyone like yells in the pub and is also interested in cars and that's mm. that uh, composite picture of a male football fan because a lot of the people I know who are like the, the nerdiest in the world are football fans but their approach to football like ours is about the obscure teams the weird countries yeah. whatever that all this yeah. stuff so that was always our specialist subject and Paul uh, continued to immerse himself in this kind of and both of us have always been like you know sending each other weird bits of football trivia with those kind of guys uh anorak. but you didn't sit and watch with your dad it wasn't like that you didn't grow oh, up no, watching we, we, oh, did. Yeah, yeah, we, we did we did i we mean did. he he, sh- he took us to games and showed us loads of sport and stuff like that but he was always i suppose slightly better adjusted about it he's more of a gentle personality for a time he wouldn't mm-hmm. have imagined the level of obsession that he that i'd end wow. up with i think but that's a that's a which, I don't know, it's to, it sort of does him a disservice. He continues to be actively interested in football, follows it a lot. He's just, but like, it, w- it wouldn't ruin his weekend if his team lost. It, it sort of can do that for mm-hmm. me. I'm, I'm 40. <laughs> and, um, no. <laughs> but yeah, uh, because we, we both had that relationship with, um, or like when we played computer games, football computer games, our favourite ones were the ones where you could ha- you know change the names of the players to make them more up-to-date and accurate. That kind of attention to detail... And yeah. Paul remained, both of us remained those people. So I remember that exactly when I was when he started, well, we were, when he started talking about this um, idea of, well, going to Micronesia for no real reason. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. We were on the tube and he said, I've got this, I've got this quite difficult but possible idea or some phrase like that. And he started describing it and I knew almost immediately that it would happen, uh, that yeah. he would commit. We didn't know how, like how it was how it would be funded, how it would be logistically possible. None of the details were clear, but that instinct Paul has to sort of take something and then s- somehow will it into existence is something Very that, determined. Yeah, I recognised yeah. it. And yeah. if you'd asked me at that moment, do you think he'll spin off from this into living in Mongolia for a bit and spending a lot of his life negotiating, uh, you know, matters of citizenship and immigration and stuff like that? I could see it all in that one mm-hmm. moment, basically. I, I suppose what I'm mm-hmm. saying is it's almost inevitable that Paul would end up um, going to loads of places that people don't know where they are and that being a sort of uh, niche. But it does mean, like, it's taken about 10 minutes to get from you asking what do you do now to this. And um, <laughs> yeah. that is a common problem. Every time people ask what does Paul actually do, it, it really is is one of the most difficult to define lives that I've ever come across. <laughs> Because obviously you've got, well, not obviously, but you've got younger twin sisters as well, haven't you? If that was obvious to someone, they'd have to be a real Sherlock. From exactly. What they'd, have to, they'd have to have researched you massively. Well done, right. So, yeah, thanks. his voice, he sounds like he's got twins in the family. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. You can just tell the way they're talking. So, yeah, so you so you brought up in Bristol, but you've got these. So we were, it, and, oh, I was too many So what was the I've dynamic got, but, like when you yeah. were growing up? Well, I, I think Paul and I always got on really well. Um, I, uh and I'm always really interested by siblings. I think this is you guys actually who didn't, like you said, who struggled to get on because that was never. Oh, is that an awkward thing to bring up? Perhaps at this point. <laughs> oh, uh, well, no. So, the... so what? You, 
So you two guys don't get on, is that? Oh, that's what we we're hated each other's guts yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. I thought that was sort of a faux pas to mention that. Yeah, no, 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 no 20 years. I was confident meeting, uh, confident bringing out because part of the conceit of the of the podcast is, is that. Absolutely. So I think it would have wow. been amazing if the two of you had just gone pale and then the meeting just ended. <laughs> Fainted. Well, yeah, yeah. So this has always really interested me. I've, I've obviously now met loads of people who who have, who had those relationships with us or continue to have, like, you'll meet twins that can't stand the sight of each other even though it's the yeah. same face <laughs> and um mm, 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 mm. but Paul and I I think always got on really well I think I partly I don't know what your age gap is but Paul and I were uh it's like four and a half year gap that's a lot that's a lot we're 18 months we're, we're 18 yeah. months See, I, I feel that that worked in our favor because by the time Paul came along I didn't experience it as a threat to my parents attention or all of the stuff that you hear about with kids that are closer together I sort of felt at four and a half like all right I'm a, I'm ready to do this now. That you know, my role as an older brother is a, is appropriate here. And then, whereas you definitely weren't ready because there's 18 months difference. When I came along, you were pissed off. Well, yeah. I, I think yeah. most kids are at that age, or at least mm. they yeah. uncomprehending. Yeah, and I do think it's yeah. fascinating to me how that has a the shadow of that can hang over a relationship for years. Even well, I, I feel like uh, probably not intentionally, but our parents spaced us out successfully and then the girls are way younger than both me and Paul so both of us saw them as like a fun novelty rather than a threat as well yeah that's a really nice dynamic that actually because the sisters were so much younger um it was just so how what's the age gap sorry with the sisters so that's seven years am I right there I'm so terrible it's something like seven questions seven Seven years years between them and me and so me it's like they might as well be a different generation they talk about me in fact Mm -hmm. as if I am a different generation and I talk about them like and regard them as essentially babies even though they'll be 30 just after Christmas and I think that is one reason for the success of the of the sibling unit we all had a chance to be our own person before the next uh in line yeah I mean I was yeah more or less I was 11 when the girls were born but even when Paul was born I, I had enough of a of a if your own self-identity or whatever the phrase is, isn't fully formed when a new sibling is thrown into the mix, I think that can be quite... A lot of parents advocate having the kids as close together as possible, though. This mentality of, like, get it all done, get it out of the way. But Mm-mm. I don't think that always bears in mind what the kids themselves are going to feel about I it. I think it's a, it's a career-based thing, isn't it? I suppose it is. It's now, now that we've got yeah. a little one, um, a lot of our peers had one child and then immediately had... or not immediately, but very quickly had a second because it's that sense of... This period is absolute train wreck career-wise. Let's get this dog shit bit of my life And actually, I, re- I really sympathise that that thing of getting back into it, especially for for the mum, usually, sadly, it's still very much get the worst of it, but go back to work, mm. re-establish yourself, and then you're back off again. For it's sure. Just... You can see why you'd want to minimise the period of your life you were living as the sort of second-rate citizen that people see parents as. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. I, for the kids, I think four years is great, but, yeah. I've heard it described as, you know, the second kid it, it comes along and it's like the parent, your parents are having an affair. They've put, shone all the light on you, loved you, and then this kid comes along and they just... You're shoved out. You're completely shoved out I of the way. I think it's the other way around. Well, of course you would. Of course, there you yeah, go. That's it's the so thing. true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. we were also very fortunate with our, with our parents. Like, our parents are very, very... Um, nurturing and loving we have zero like childhood trauma or parental trauma type oh really stories. well maybe and you're saying zero. your dad's really your dad's really funny podcast, yeah please. your dad's really funny well right so tell us a bit more about your parents please because well, they sound I think i'm not suggesting that if siblings don't get on it's anything to do with like the, the fault of parents but i do feel like it was reasonably easy for us to all thrive because our parents just sort of nurtured us all individually like I, recently our 
I think it was on my 40th birthday, I was with my mum, in fact. Um, I went back to Bristol um, last last year. Oh, no, it must have been my 39th birthday, because um, the year before last now. Anyway, the reason I went back was to watch us play QPR. But um, it happened to also be my birthday. And um, my um, my mum was talking about the the uh, my imminent descent into my 40s and stuff. And she was nearly that age when she had the twins. She she was like became a mum again of mm. twins at thirty nine. Um, and I said, "What was that like?" Because I can't, I you know, it, having two kids has been enough for me to feel I've lost control of my. And she said, "Well, it was fine. I mean, I don't really remember my forties. I was busy, and it struck me as quite a big thing to say about a decade of your life, really. But that was that is kind of her. My mum, our mum has that pragmatism of like, if there'd been eleven kids in the house, she would have gone about it much the same way. Just like, well." you know both of them were very uh i don't quite know what the word is but um they there's some there'd be arguments and stuff but basically they there was their relationship is very very harmonious and that was translated to our household environment to a large extent i'd say that's amazing and what was the household like did you share bedrooms did you well paul and i had a, a bunk beds for a while but uh that uh changed after an infamous incident where i fell through the top bunk onto him um <laughs> Which, yeah, I still, I still can't really sleep on the bottom of a bunk bed. If they're from oh, a train that. or sleeper train yeah. or something, you yeah. can't do that. I just felt it all splinter beneath me and I was sort of dangling on top of him. But it was the middle of the night and it's not the sort of thing you want to wake up to, I don't think. I, uh, <laughs> I have been on the top bunk. Me and my girlfriend went on the top bunk. Uh, well, not both of us on the top bunk. We, we did a sleeper train this yeah. year and I, it, it proved to me that I still can't sleep on a top bunk without assuming I'm going to fall through it. So after that, we've got separate bedrooms anyway is the point. <laughs> Can I get you both to describe each other? So, Paul, can you describe Mark? Um, <laughs> such an odd question. I've got to say, like, you know, of all the questions... Is it? It, it sort of is. I mean, it's something you're never asked to do, really. Maybe exactly six feet about... tall, that would be a start, sir. Well, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm never sure exactly how tall you are for, for a start, because I okay. always think of you as being really tall. And I'm, I'm five foot ten. Mark's obviously always been taller than me I never quite made it I, I thought I had the run of him when I had a couple of years to spare and I just got cocky you got lazy you just him. stopped you stopped <laughs> exactly. didn't get him so you know it still rankles with me he's taller but I always think of him as more like 6'2 I reckon if you stood up straight you probably would be but I've never seen you do that that's the thing I, I think I probably haven't he just sits <laughs> down the whole time no I just hunched my posture is so bad that I, there is an argument that I've never reached the potential height as a human that I could have had I, I think one of the reasons the question's interesting is that I, I actually very rarely get asked uh, to describe Mark is it, what happens a lot, and I, I guess this happens for all siblings of you know relatively well-known people or people who are in the media eye in some way. I get told about Mark. I don't get asked about Mark. I get told yeah. time and again. I saw yeah. your brother on, and, yeah. and it's the absolute. It's the biggest conversa- uh, conversational cul-de-sac there is, <laughs> and it makes me sound like I'm some sort of you know bitter, miserable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but basically, there isn't really a reply to it. And at first, when it used to happen, when he was very young, in you know, when Mark was early in his career, and it was still a really big deal for him to be on TV, and we'd sort of gather around the the TV in the living room to watch him. That that then, if someone had said, oh, "I saw Mark on TV," we, it was great. But what what tends to happen now is people still do it routinely. Um, and they'll say, I saw Mark on... And they often don't even remember what they saw him on. Yeah. They'll say, I saw Mark mm. on something and expect me to put in the details. I think it just comes from the fact that for most people, 
if one of your siblings was on TV, that would be a sort of all the family around the TV moment. Yeah, but yeah, for yeah. us now, after how many years, um, Mark can be on all sorts of things. We're, we're, with the greatest respect to Mark's output, we're, we're not going to all sit and watch all of the things he's on. So yeah. people sort of expect me to go, oh, yeah, of course, it was this programme, this is what he did, mm-hmm. this is what he said. But instead it sort of ends with them going, you know, I saw him on the thing. What the thing he was on? And me sort of saying... <laughs> well, hang on, Paul, I great. saw you on Sky yeah. News this morning. You Come well, on. you probably saw me getting <laughs> cut off by my internet connection by Sky News. But, um, <laughs> Mind you, but no, um, um, I mean... It, our mum's got an even bigger conversational cul-de-sac, which is she tells me about uh, other comedians that she's seen on TV who she believes I'm friends with. As I said, Tim mentioned in the Telegraph this <laughs> week. Quite... And again, there's not a lot I can do about that apart from say, oh, yeah, I expect he is. Yeah, again, he's very famous. <laughs> or, um... <laughs> See, that's, that, that's the other aspect of it. Is that our, our parents have gone through exactly these phases. That At first, it was pretty tough for all of us. It was tough, probably toughest for Mark that they would just... You know, it would be all they were, they would talk about would be Mark Mark's career, and then I think it got to a point where he just, you know, he would he didn't have to say it, but I think he just achieved too much that it became impossible to objectively sort of make them excited. So it was sort of, you know, if Mark was on some big TV show, it it would be sort of oh yeah okay, and so for the rest of us, when with our sort of relatively modest achievements it became a lot harder to wow them it's definitely uh, true that i've talked about this or was writing about this this week that like as you one of the things that can do you in mentally in i think across this industry is there's endless focus on what is next it's not just this industry Mm. but like Mm. and paul's right it went from understandably and it's not my parents fault or anything but they go from marveling that you're on bbc2 or something to be like well what will it be next what will it be next and then you've got your, your uncles and your grandparents it'll be it'll be hollywood next will it be and i, mm. I realized not that long ago that part of the reason that i haven't ever perhaps taken enough satisfaction or pride in some stuff i've done is is just this endless emphasis on because then you start being like that you start uh thinking mm. what how can I use this already interesting thing as leverage to another thing and if you live like that we all know people in comedy in entertainment who are never satisfied and I think it's because of that because you're often surrounded mm. by people saying what well, if you've if you've done that then I made a joke mm. about how like I'm sure when Neil Armstrong came back from the moon it would have been like an hour before someone said so what's so what's <laughs> yeah. next what's Where are you next? Going next? yeah it, yeah but 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 what would it have been for his his sibling who had just sort of done a really good year in his accounting firm <laughs> and had got a little bonus you know it's and that's, of, that's that's the thing I I'm not suggesting I had it worse, definitely. I, if oh, anything, no, there no. was definitely a period that was really tedious for the siblings because at Christmas or at any family get-together, the conversation would go back to me and my stuff in a way that was, I think, actually equally annoying for me and for the siblings because all mm. of them yeah. wanted it to be that. It became like a sort of... And, of course, with family gatherings, it is often like once a year or a couple of them a year. So that exacerbates the mm. problem because then it is like a six-month catch-up for everyone else. And, you know... And also, as we all also know... A lot can happen in six months, but also fuck all can happen in comedy in six months. <laughs> True. You know, well, totally. You can easily have the cut to now. Cut to now. Yeah, you could be. <laughs> yeah, this year's. So, what have you been up to? Is going to be a, a tricky one for most people in entertainment. <laughs> this is the thing with with Mark. It's annoyingly hard to find a bad word to say about him as a wow brother. Generally speaking, and I've got to say, this is one of the one of the things about him being more in the public domain is as soon as someone becomes relatively known everyone's got an opinion and usually Mm. for almost everyone there are people who irrationally hate that person or have something nasty to say it's i've never had anyone say anything i've never seen anyone say anything bad about market you know it's kind of amazing to have someone who who is like that so i imagine people think well behind the scenes i bet he's a real bastard but actually no i mean growing up it was incredible that you know he would 
the fact that we had such a harmonious relationship owes a lot to the older sibling because obviously I was boring and little for a lot of that time but he Mm -hmm. stuck with it and persevered to the point where we could get to that relationship where we would just spend hours playing football in the garden or computer games but I was still younger than him so he could have quite easily just thought like a lot of older siblings he's not worth my time I'll Mm -mm. sort of just play with my mates instead but I was always part of those games in the garden those endless games of football he would make sure I was part of that so I do think it comes a lot from the older sibling because I think the younger one just is happy to have the attention. Yeah, I think I desperately wanted a sibling. Some kids are like that. I can't remember why, but I saw mm. it as being an important thing. You know, I was delighted at the idea of a brother coming. I definitely, yeah, I wanted someone to play football with. I had faith in the idea that if I put some years in, it would be, and you know, that's... I also, looking back, I used to... There were these books called the Hardy Boys books, which were um, the sort of... Yeah, right, the, the counterpart of, like, the Judy Bloom and stuff like that, like, trashy American teen... Lit. I read dozens mm. of those, and there were dozens of them. The, the guy wrote, like, about 100 or something. Um, mm-hmm. And that was Brothers Fighting Crime, obviously. I read a lot of stuff where brothers got up to uh, hijinks, and I think that influenced me as well. I think I had a very rosy idea of what the relationship between brothers and sisters... Well, the famous five, I suppose, they're all, you know, I read, the more I think about it, I read loads of propaganda for successful sibling relationships <laughs> as a kid. When you were kids, there must have been big arguments. I, think... I mean, there are always arguments when sports are involved, but they're all very transparent. I think this is one of the reasons, and I, I don't like to analyse it too much because it gets a bit a bit wanky. But it's oh, one I the... want you to be wanky. It's a podcast. Come on. I, 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 sorry, yeah. <laughs> Let's sorry. do wanky. Sorry, I'm, I'm new to podcasts. Um, yes, well, do it. The, the more shit that... you talk, the better it is for everyone. Exactly. This is not Sky Sports. I, I do think one of the, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why sports are so good is they do allow you to explore and get emotions out uh, in a way that isn't just sitting around a table like a sort of therapy session. So I think sport did provide us with the opportunity to have fights and hate each other for periods of time because you know that that's that's what but it was all within the 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 sort of framework of sport but I'm sure stuff came out there as you know feelings Mm. of being inadequate compared to the other one or you know you know that kind of stuff all comes out but it comes out within the context of we had a game of cricket Mark bowled me out and I threw the stumps into through the window or something like that, you know. So it's it's yeah, a more healthy way for these things to. Yeah. It's yeah. It is interesting actually because it's true that the relationship between us was almost impeccable. But yeah, if there if there was one thing Paul was infamous for in the family, it was like if he got out in cricket, he would. Um, <laughs> we had quite a big garden in those days, and the house mm. overlooked the garden. My mum would watch out of the window, and she would always be able to pinpoint the moment when Paul was about to come storming inside. She'd see like some sort of decision or some incident in the game, then she'd see... I remember him once being given out and turning to face his stumps and just smashing them up with the bat, knocking them out of the ground. And But again, you never, you did not see this aggression from Paul other than in, in sport. No, but yeah. you, you've got to remember, these are the days before Hawkeye, before video referees and stuff. So for me, as a, as a player, it was frustrating. Yeah, you had no right of appeal. This is before exactly. we... Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. oh in a way, I wonder if this sped up the process of technology. Yeah. Probably so did, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. Absolutely. I reckon the reason they brought in the appeals system at Wimbledon was the number of people that would just smash their rackets up and stuff. It was starting to become expensive <laughs> for them to stage the tournament. Um, but like away from sport and stuff, it happened so rarely that I can still remember beating, well, inflicting damage on Paul physically once because it was so, like it's still, I'm still guilty about it. There was a morning where I was trying to lie in. I'd reached the age, early teenage, where you've got no interest in ever leaving your bed. But Paul was still Ugh. about like eight or nine so we still wanted to do stuff and all of us were in bed and he went out onto the landing and 
shouted, my bunk, my bed's cold and I've got nothing to do. My bed's Aww. cold and I've got nothing oh, to do. that's so sweet. My bed's cold, but then he just kept doing it. My bed's cold and I've got like, dozens of times. And I was just lying in bed thinking, well, I can't. I can't be doing with this guy. You can't just be repeating this over and over again. And I got out of bed, didn't say anything, but just gave him um, what was known at the time as a Chinese burn. Presumably still is. But oh, we yes. Did that yeah, yeah, yeah. And he started oh. to wail and I became conscious, you know, and it was a like medium-sized family drama at the time. But it was even that was all done and dusted that day. But the fact that stands out in my memory uh, from 30 years ago suggests that there were very few incidents of violence between us. And Paul, do you remember that? No, and that's, I think that's it was quite telling. I have no memory of it whatsoever. I've only remembered it through the retelling. But I think that's like a lot of childhood, isn't it, that you... You're never totally sure what your memories are and what are the memories of you being told by other people. Yeah, I, I have no, I have no memories till I'm about thirteen. I've got a 13. tiny handful. Thirteen is yeah. late, and especially um, with, yeah, especially with our mum as well, because our mum is an absolute devil for like having these famous family tales which are recycled at every every occasion. My mum's got about right. like a stock of about twelve anecdotes which you know plot our course <laughs> from babies to the yeah. present day, and. Both me and Paul have heard them so many times, we've got no idea if we remember them or if they happened or what. Although her most famous one is before either of us can remember because it was the day I was born, uh, the nurse. And this is the most famous one, the day you were born. I think it is my mum's favourite anecdote, which again is probably (laughs) telling, yeah. Yeah, very telling, yeah. Uh, Was the, I mean, it will soon be Christmas, we don't know what the Christmas regulations will be, but me and Paul are potentially about a month away from hearing this again. But... um, (laughs) essentially I was a big baby and a nurse or health visitor or some lady came in and and said fat baby fat adult and obviously I turned out to be quite a a thin adult Uh, but my mum my mum's never tired of the fact that a the nurse was wrong b she my if there's a pattern to these stories it's that it's our mum being proved right or validated over a very long period didn't he and he said (laughs) you'll never be able to park your car there and you know what I did park there and 30 years on if she saw that nurse now she'd still be on about it like she's I, she I should track her down at the age of 94 and just said, yeah. <laughs> on a deathbed. On a deathbed, showed her photos of Mark. Is this a we fat should, adult, um, would you say? We yeah. should pitch a show where Davina McCall reunites our mum with all these people that have been wrong in her anecdotes. So then, obviously, there was a big gap between when the twins came along. So is there still a bit of a division? Are you, you all get on really well, but obviously you two are very close. And because, like Mark, you said, they, they feel like a different generation. I felt like Paul was obviously... Well, I felt like he was closest to their age because he was. Paul was more adjacent to the girls as kids. Like, he was yeah. six, seven, and they were toddlers. I was already at secondary school. So I did feel that I was perhaps slightly a different proposition from the yeah. three of them away because I was now dealing with teenage stuff and they were essentially all so there was a bit of a period where I felt like it was there was never any enmity but there was a bit where I felt like it was one of me and three of them a little bit just because Mm -hmm. they suddenly I'm 13 and they're still the kids and that felt like a sort of meaningful division and I'd say that the uh, all of that is gone now I think except that the girls do retain a intra-twin bond which is impenetrable probably yeah. even to me and Paul mm. like they are their own thing they are those twins that you mm. get who are I don't know if they actually have a psychic connection but they're so close that they wow. they've been uh they've participated in studies to show whether twins have a you know oh. psychological they, they, they sound, yeah. about every year they go to some funny place 
where they're asked to like you know name a color uh think of a, a pig smoke a cigarette like 12 things like that and they get 50 quid and then the yeah. results unnervingly match up they're those guys so i think we've only been divided in the sense that twins have got a magical thing which and i've really enjoyed seeing that i think twins are a fascinating phenomenon i feel really privileged to have witnessed oh god amazing was there any parental favoritism (laughs) well (laughs) i think we've we've think we know that interesting to see whether the mom whether your mom was sort of closer to the twins because they're girls i think the only um the only documented favoritism is there is a kind of trope that i was always the favorite one because i was first and like a golden boy and then went to Oxbridge mm. but also because my mum has made a series of faux pas where she's basically said things which imply favouritism towards me <laughs> and also you're um there's a famous incident now in family folklore where our our my dad's mum uh our grandma we, we went to hers at Christmas and um we'd already hit this is a very uh, by this point we were reasonably old we must have been about 16 Mark would have been I guess 20 uh, and it had already become a thing that you know we very much knew Mark was the golden boy and every year we'd go visit that side of the family and everyone would just want to hear Mark's stories, understandably, because he was starting to do interesting things. It, you know, even just the fact he'd done a English, he was doing an English degree at Oxbridge and this kind of stuff, you know, made him a lot more popular with, with the family. I um, every grandparent box. Really. And, and, and there was a time, <laughs> you so did. Me, and, me and my sisters walked in and uh, my grandma, who's not a particularly effusive person yet, sort of almost yelled, there he is, and went out with arms outstretched. That's right. No. Yeah. Neatly sidestepped me and went to Mark, who That's was behind awful. me, and wrapped around. And we still, we still talk we about still this talk about a joke. It. It's, it's sort of a family it's joke. It's taken me a long time to live down someone shouting, there he is, to all four of us. <laughs> and and walking literally past me. I mean, That's, yeah, how but, did you feel? I, uh, but to be honest, by that point, that ship had sailed somewhat. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, you've come like the fact we were able to laugh about it shows that I don't think there's any great pain there, but it, it's quite it's quite it's an not amusing... been forgotten either, though. No, it's it's, <laughs> it's not. But I've just finished your book, Mark. I've just finished Contacts, which I loved. This is relevant to what I'm going to ask it's you. Fine. Even if it wasn't, I'd be more than happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> Sally, very drunk, has the revelation, right, that family was more important than anything and a brother and sister should be able to tell each other anything. So that made me think, how honest are you with each other? Cause, well, uh, and in terms of your story there, Paul. I mean, in the book, she has that sort of as a drunken revelation, but it's never quite followed through. It's one of those things that people think, you know, but I think we're well. I think we've got a pretty. All of us have pretty honest relationships, but with the caveat that we were sort of brought up in a like for all the openness and harmony and love in the family house. It wasn't a big family for talking about feelings or hugging or uh, ah. our, our dad himself was brought up by um, the, the grandma that. Uh, Paul just mentioned the of there he is gate um yeah. and, and her husband so our grandparents on that side reasonably traditional um like Victorian style disciplinarian parents and then on our mum's side she was brought up Church of Wales by two like lovely wonderful but extremely fierce scary parents <laughs> so mm, both our parents mm-hmm. grew up in not very emotional Households, and I think that did translate. It's me and Paul and the girls, and all of us have had to like negotiate the idea of emotional relationships between ourselves, sort of from scratch. I think, um, 
because that's interesting. Well, not exactly from scratch. It's not that we weren't shown how to do that. We just weren't that family. I used to go around to people's houses where, you know, the people would hug a lot more, for example, or there'd be much more performative we're a great family stuff and i i used to mm-hmm. think wow imagine living like this all the time i didn't envy it i was just intrigued by it i think I, well I'm, we're always intrigued by big families yeah, because, yeah, yeah, totally. because we're kind of brutally honest with each other which i think makes really honest other people uncomfortable <laughs> frighteningly honest you yeah. know <laughs> yeah yeah which we think is a good thing but mm-hmm. actually certainly people that are around us are sometimes but Paul, are you as, are you as happy that the childhood was like that or do you wish it was more like mine and Rachel's sort of being very awful. Open what do you mean? Awful. Yeah, it was ter- our childhood was terrible. That's not good. That's not good. Um, you wish your childhood was terrible. You've yeah. really no. sold it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be open. It'll ruin your life. Dreadful, honest. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, no, no. I, I, I've, I wouldn't change it. I think we were incredibly lucky. Um, I think all, I guess, all childhoods leave you with things that are good and things that need to be worked on and I think as Mark says like one of the things that has been a bit of a shock in later life is people talking about emotions I suppose that mm. was just something that we we didn't do and still don't do in a family really uh in in a sort of family unit so it was quite a revelation to me at getting to know people better I guess coming into my sort of late teens and those ages where people would talk to their parents about how they were feeling or something that you know, something very personal and deep, and I just that just wasn't something we did. So we, no. we do that. I guess you do that elsewhere. I suppose. When my no. um, marriage was sort of falling apart, for example, I, I was aware that I was going to get divorced and stuff. And it's the sort of thing that in a movie, in an American indie movie, a person would stand up mm. on Christmas Day and say, "Guys, I have news." But <laughs> the only way I could do it was to just drip feed the awareness of it into the brains of everyone else, like m- wow. over the course of months. There was we've never been a family for big you know, announcements or those family moments that are the pi- the pivot of a lot of, I don't know why I say American movies, but I associate it with the Wes Anderson yeah. type setup. But yeah. those things, are, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I always like films like that because there, there was, I cannot imagine a situation in our house where a piece of news would be big enough that someone would stop Sunday roast for it. So there was no tears. You wouldn't cry. You wouldn't get hysterical. You wouldn't do any of that. I'm sure. Stuff. I'm sure it was like children, as you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but, mean, but not, I, I suppose no. older. No, I mean, I, I just don't think it's that. It still isn't. You know, it still isn't that dynamic. Um, no, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of joking. There's a lot of love and a, a lot of what used to be called banter. Like, but it is at, or it's mostly at that level. I think our interactions as a family. Mm. Yeah, and I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I someone was saying this about um about I think it was it was sort of in reference to my relationship with Mark and how a lot of the time it feels like we're very close but we don't necessarily talk in that way. And I was saying part of what is actually really lovely about it is just to have one relationship in your life which is still like that, where it's very simple and you know, you, yeah. you just yeah. it's just fun and it, it almost is like a a relationship that stayed completely untarnished from the one we had when we were children. And there are loads of people you can, over the years, hopefully, if you're lucky, you get a lot of people you can talk to about your your deepest, darkest moments. But it's yeah. also nice to have one relationship where you can just shoot the shit about football every now and again. And, yeah. you know I, know, I know if there was something really deep, we could talk about it. But it was more, it's quite nice to have one relationship that's just purely, it's just always fun. And I just always feel happy when I talk to I them. think I'd agree with that. 
I have a, a treasured memory of uh, me and Paul went to Ukraine to watch a football match, well, a football tournament, basically, but we only had tickets to one match. And this is 2012, so we're like 32 and 28. And um, loads of stuff was going on in our respective lives by that point that we could have been talking about. Um, it was like we, we flew there, spent the day there, an overnight train, like a sleeper train, although there was absolutely no sleep because the woman that was in with us had the most extraordinary... <laughs> Uh, cough that either of us ha- has ever heard or will ever hear, and um, and you were falling out the bunk bed. We were, uh, they were bunk beds as well. So there was that nostalgia. <laughs> but then, um, yeah. um, and uh, we had that moment of trying to sleep for about twenty minutes, and then both of us peering across at each other, going, "This is." I think I used the phrase, <laughs> a sporting phrase, "unplayable." The woman was unplayable. <laughs> it, it was uh, Paul likened it to trying to return the serve of Federer or Sampras or something. It was, it was the greatest coughing, stroke, snoring exhibition. <laughs> the greatest. Oh. Um, but so we end up spending like, you know, a day doing that, a whole night and then another day messing about in uh, Donetsk before this match and then back to the airport. So a frantic trip. But yeah, for that whole time, we didn't talk about anything except the fact that we were there, the trip itself, what the match was going to be like, all of See, it. See, that and sounds lovely. That well, sounds it, it, it so kind nice. It was, that's the thing. And, and I, I remember people asking like, you know, why didn't you talk about this or that? Because I was, all sorts was happening in my life. But that's sort of, as Paul said, was sort of the point. It's pure escapism. Mm. And I do think that's a really valuable thing to have. I, you know, we um we still have a, it was discontinued for a couple of years, but we have a game where we um, predict the results of games on Saturdays, bet minute amounts of money, like 10p and stuff like that. And mm. I mean, a couple of those things, I mean, a fantasy league and stuff like that. And people often think it's peculiar that groups of men use those things, like, you know, have those bonds but don't use them to talk about uh, deep stuff but I do think it's almost a conscious thing it's great to have uh, worlds you can disappear into which don't require you to be wrapped up in your own brain 100% of the time and that's what sport does for a gener- for generations of men yeah and people always criticise exactly. that people say oh you guys talk about football rather than anything else and they're right to criticise it because some- sometimes it-, it does suggest a sort of emotional illiteracy but I know a lot of very emotionally able men who just like having sport because it's because it's that because it's yeah. a break yeah. you know however serious it is it's still a break my partner who's obsessed with football is a sort of it's so intense and such a huge part of his life but at the end of the day he said you know sort of he gets so much emotion out with it but at the end of the day it doesn't matter as much as the really heavy shit exactly and that's his and escape even as an obsessive yeah. fan you accept that it doesn't it still yeah. doesn't matter as much as the big stuff. So that's good. It's a, it's good to have something that mm. is, seems enormously important for those brief periods of time. And so yeah. we, need we need to find that. Yeah. We need we to need find that. Yes, Paul. The, the only way we cut because obviously we work together. Yeah, which is hard. Yeah, that. That's but a in tough, a weird, yeah, yeah, but in a weird way, it takes us away from the sibling. That is our sport. And mm. do you know what yeah, I mean? I think work is. It our does sport. take us away. Anyway, can I ask what was the last present you bought each other? Um, so we're very insightful. Well, see, this is the answer to this is interesting because, uh, or rather, trying to work it out is interesting because Paul and I haven't spent the last Christmases together for I'd say four or five years now because of our respective family units and stuff like that. But for a very long time, we did every all the siblings went back to Bristol and it was a proper big family Christmas. And for years, we all were buying each other presents. And in that period, Paul and I. Um, had a long-standing tradition. It's not that it's, the tradition doesn't exist anymore, which is harder to do now, but we used to have an annual tradition of trying to uh, spring a present on the other one, which was impossible to predict, like a, an impossible thing. For example, one year, 
this is impossible now. This could never happen in <laughs> 2020. But um, when I was at university, I found out that the Super Furry Animals, who were a band that we adored, were playing at yeah. the Corn Exchange at my uni. But I found it out in May and I bought tickets and I kept it the existence of this show a secret from him for like six or seven months i like i removed the enemy from his room like i, I cut adverts out. I, I people were sworn to secrecy you couldn't do that now because within six seconds now if your band is on Twitter, tour. Yeah, but in Twitter. those days yeah. you, your band could be in your town and you wouldn't find out until the day so we had we had this tradition of like secret or surprise gift like, that. like for example that trip to ukraine um i did that as a christmas present and the way i the reveal was i wrote it on an apple or something so, something that had some it was some sort of in joke which i can't remember oh, uh, i, I yeah. went on google translate and wrote in russian we are going to this tournament and so then i wrapped it up and it, obviously you couldn't tell what it was so we were always doing stuff like that like yeah. you took me about four months to work out what it said yeah. um, i had to get a ukrainian course it was or difficult you'd, but you'd wrap something up that wasn't the real present there'd be a dummy yeah. one or you'd deliberately uh, change the shape of it we had a real we really prided ourselves on that Sort of and stuff. the presents were really, they were the big ones for Christmas. I remember that, you know, once our parents had sort of, we weren't really their responsibility in that way anymore. Once we, you get to that age where your parents' presents aren't a big deal well, anymore. Well, your parents just have to say, look, what do you actually, what do you want? Exactly. Yeah. Once yeah. we were at that phase, what kept Christmas exciting, and I think more exciting than any other person I, I knew, we were always, you knew the other one would be cooking up something really yeah. big and special. And um I remember once I, I got Mark, I was in Verona at the time, I was living in Verona and I came back for Christmas and um, I had got Mark a trip to Verona to come and watch uh, Juventus versus Chievo, which the, the team in Verona at the time. And again, I think I presented it by just wrapping up scarves of the two teams. So he opened up this scarf and just looked a bit disappointed and obviously thought, oh, the magic's over, you know, he, it was we're just giving scarves now, are we? props attached to it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was like, there was the... And, and the, the the most, you know, it was a, a great trip. I mean, the most memorable part of that trip still remains to me that Mark managed to take my flatmate's passport to instead the airport of instead yeah. of his own. Oh, um, no. So I had to get in a taxi in Italy and say, go as fast as you can. Which you should never the do. Guy, the guy's face, <laughs> he looked absolutely delighted. It was a moment he'd always dreamt of. And I remember barreling down the motorway about 140 miles an hour and making it just in time, having Mark having delayed the flight. Um, I give him his passport, but it was it was, was you know really it was lucky. just. And in fact, also on that trip to Ukraine, we were cutting it a bit fine with the flight because the only way we could afford to do it was to leave the stadium and almost immediately get there. And that was another occasion where I remember us getting, jumping into the back of a car without seatbelts. Paul saying we need to go as fast as we can, and then within moments, us thinking we shouldn't have said that to this gentleman. Did you only do that with each other, or did you do that? Did the parents with the, with the other with the twins or with the parents? Did you do the weird presents with them? We did do. We did always. There was a family tradition of having to make it as mysterious as possible. Whoever you were giving a present to, but Paul and I were just better at it because we knew each other's minds, so you'd know instantly yeah. what the other yeah. person would want. Um, and these days, because we're all older and people don't have money, well, it was never about money. It was always about the the surprise aspect, but. Um, our mum does an annual thing of saying, with presents this year, maybe should we just do, you know, just a £5 limit or we'll all just agree on yeah. one thing or we'll just do presents for the kids. But as a sibling yeah. unit, we're all quite resistant to that because we remember when, again, the presents were our sport, really. <laughs> uh, the only reason we haven't continued to do it, I think, is if you're not physically together on Christmas Day, you've got to see the person's response to it. You've, you've got to, it's about the pantomime of yeah. it, basically. 
Yeah. It was, yeah. wasn't it? And the fact you'd sort of be able to look at the present under the tree and think, well, it looks just like a book, but it would be a book with one page cut out. And yeah. on that page, there'd be a quotation that would send you somewhere to the attic. And in the attic, That's there'd be sort of yeah. a Frenchman who brilliant. would recite a myth to you. You know, so it was, <laughs> yeah. the, the, if you thought you knew what the present was, you couldn't be further away. Basically. That's right. <laughs> we'd, done, so good. we'd unveil them on Christmas Eve and then like, look at each other's, but you knew that you, they were, by definition, it was unguessable. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah. I think this is. It's a childhood thing that you look back on and think it was lovely to have that time in our lives where we could behave that way, you know. And no I, time I, I now, because there is no time. time. Not when you've got kids. Um, no, no, I think that, that's the other thoughts. thing. As soon as, you know, yeah. Mark had kids and then I have a little boy and yeah. suddenly it's... it's and, and obviously, yeah, it's just a different life now, isn't it? But Left in the wild, we'd still behave like that. I'm sure in our 60s we'll revert to doing this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. so. It's true. true. <laughs> So who's most likely to be late out of the two of you? Me. Mark. Yeah. Okay, clear. So, Mark, <laughs> Paul, is Mark scatty? Is Mark No, I don't think scatty's fair. I think Mark's always doing too many things at, at once. Uh, he's always trying to do 15 different things at once. And, and to be fair, like, you know, I, I think I did, I did go down the road of always being late and then just had a few moments where I thought, no, nah, I've just got to rein this in. And so I'm, I'm generally on time for stuff. But Mark's always, to be honest, he's always trying to do about 15 things. So it's not. Mark's writing a novel right now. It comes yeah. Exactly. That thing. Yeah, I, I, my brain will go, all right, you've got to be there in 15 minutes. So if you do 12 more emails, that should be about right, I reckon. And, I'm, you know, I can't switch that off. I'm always trying to cram. And now I'm, you know, these days I have a, a partner who's, if anything, even worse at it. Like, basically, we, we egg each other on to worse and worse timekeeping because both of us are like this. Both of us think, and it's the same problem. She also is doing a million things at once. So we convince ourselves yeah. and each other that, so where people find it stressful to travel with us because we won't be at the station more than three minutes before the train. And so if you're one of these people that's there with the tickets half an hour before, you don't want to be going with us. And um, even with planes, uh, she's worse than me, though. I get nervous at the airport. We, we've got a, <laughs> we've got a um, catchphrase, which is it's just boarding because um, like I panic when it says go to gate or whatever. Or But we've been in an airport where it says boarding and she, Leanne will still say, that's just boarding. <laughs> Just like, yeah, but that means everyone's getting on the plane. No, no, it's just boarding. It, it has to be in the air before she admits that we're in any trouble. Whereas, Paul, you would be there very early, absolutely on time, yeah? Yeah, no. ex- uh, to the extent where, uh, well, when, obviously when you have a kid, it, it changes life. So to some extent, being in an airport is just the greatest luxury you can have because there's nothing that can be demanded of you. You would just have to be in the airport. So I started getting to flights really early when we had a kid because it was like, right, this is this is less paradise. But what I, I used to do is get there so early that once I went to entirely the wrong terminal, sat, had a coffee, and then realised I was in the wrong terminal and still made it to the flight. <laughs> I had to run that time. But no, I, I, I'm very, very early with, with stuff generally. Um, yeah, and I, I think it was partly because we used to get later and later. My, my wife works in travel, which is the the in a way the worst thing for traveling because she's amazing at it but she's amazing at it to the point where she got too far that way where she was so blasé about flights closing like Leanne, later with Leanne and you it's she got so blasé that I'd be there going no I, th- I think we we probably do need to get on and she'd say honestly I've been on 14 flights this month it's going to be fine and and sure enough we had a couple of very close calls and after that I thought no not I, for me <laughs> I, I did actually miss one eventually going from um New York to LA I just and I, I was when he said you it's too late you can't get on I did have this thing of like 
what do you mean? Like, that's I, I, I've been watching this movie for years. I never actually miss it. This is just a thing I do. I, I had to, but yeah. Paul, but Paul, does it make you angry? Because I get really angry. Rachel, you are late for stuff, and it really winds me up. It so tough. does it wind you up that Mark is late for stuff? Uh, um, no, no, not really. I mean, we we don't do a lot of stuff where it's a big problem for me. Um, mm. No, it doesn't really wind me up when people are late. Generally, actually. It's funny, it's a, it's a thing that should annoy me, but it doesn't. Maybe it's just because my time actually genuinely is less valuable than other people's. <laughs> it's, it's never really bothered me. I actually hate people being early. If, I, if I'm caught on the hoof, if I, if I think, oh, I'm going to be doing something in 15 minutes and someone calls me then, yeah. God, that throws me because just, for some reason... I just haven't settled my brain into that yeah. mode, and no, it, I, I find that absolutely I awful. I don't even like it when someone's exactly on. When someone says <laughs> I'll come around at noon, and then at, on the stroke of noon they knock on the door, you're like, "All right, bloody hell!" <laughs> yeah, I know we said noon, but I, I mean, you know, not actual noon, yeah. surely. This may not be a question you like, but is there anything you want to say to each other that you've never said before? I'm, I'm not. I'm not certain this would be the forum I'd use. I'm sort of. I'm. I'm holding out for deathbed. Um, for. <laughs> Oh, come on, give what, it to us. If someone, it's a new podcast. That's a great idea for a podcast. You interview people on their deathbed. <laughs> I suppose there's some <laughs> possible sort of pitfalls, but by God, you'd get some exclusives then. Yeah, but imagine the pressure <laughs> on the record it. then. You'd want to record on quite a few different formats, wouldn't you? Just <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They'd be, they'd be... I'm sorry, I know you're about to die, but uh, there's a thing called clean... Yeah, clean food. <laughs> This has been a Little Wonder production. Logo artwork from Kathy Mason. Voice from Melanie Walters. Music from Prodri Viney. With special thanks to Beth Forrest, Steve Pickup, Sam Roberts, Henry Whittacombe and Joe Williams. Other podcasts from Little Wonder include Here to Judge and Welcome to Spooktown. Subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. That was lovely. I'll see you in Stroud. He's gone. He's gone.